We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com marathon. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel, a podcast about all things rock art. Send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Today, Dr. Alan Garfinkel talks with Peter Merlin, an acclaimed author, researcher, rock art explorer, adventure, freelance journalist, and historian. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. Welcome everyone in podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, with episode 11 of the Rock Art Podcast on your Archaeology Podcast Network. Today, we're really graced with a very special honor to speak with. Peter W. Merlin, who's an acclaimed author, researcher, rock art explorer, adventurer, freelance journalist, dot, 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 all of those and more. He has extensive personal knowledge of rock art resources worldwide. He's an author of many books for the general and technical audience, has published quite a number of papers and articles, and appeared in a dozen television documentaries on the History Channel, Discovery, Nat Geo, and others. And he has done public speaking including numerous presentations. Today, Peter will take us on a bit of a journey talking about his personal background and his association with the fields of archaeology, anthropology, and of course, rock art studies. And we'll do a quick overview of his worldwide travels in rock art visitation, discovery, and documentation. Finally, focus, laser focus in on his visits and reflections on the UNESCO World Heritage Rock Art Sites in Tassili. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. For those of you who don't know what Tassili or Tassili is, it's a desert plateau in southern Algeria. It uh, stretches from the borders of Niger to Libya, 
covers about 72,000 square miles. And within that area, it's uh, thousands of years of changing Saharan climate and erosion have created these amazing geological formations, sandstone pillars, deep canyons, and more than 300 natural arches. And this uh, location shot into worldwide fame back in the 1930s, not for the landscape per se, but for its treasure of ancient rock art. There's more than 15,000 both rock drawings and rock paintings, 10,000 years of, of human history mirroring the environmental changes taking place and testifying to the movements and changes in human populations throughout the region. And with that, hello, Peter. Well, hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> We're honored. So you're coming to us from where in the world today? Well, at the moment, I'm living in the Midwest, in Illinois, having just moved here from Southern California. So it's a bit of a big change. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess we always begin in our Rock Art podcast asking for our guest scholar, our keynote of today, to uh, tell us a bit about how you came to be interested in the fields of anthropology, archaeology, and I guess, importantly, for this podcast, Rock Art. Well, I, I was exposed to a lot of this stuff from a very young age. I was born and raised in Hollywood, California. My father was an actor and a World, World War II veteran and a world traveler who'd been to a lot of interesting places like Mexico and Africa and Asia. And he had a great interest in archaeology and paleontology and natural history, and he sort of and infused me with that same interest and love. And he used to take me to the museums all the time, Natural History Museum, La Brea Tar Pits, the Griffith Observatory. And so I just picked up an interest in these fields. And we lived in, in an area where you could go hiking in the hills and it was, you know, it was like being out in the middle of nature. You, know, you didn't have any sense that you were in the middle of a huge metropolis of Los Angeles. And there was all kinds of wildlife and fossils, and it was just a wonderful sort of thing. And my interest in rock art just sort of evolved over time. With Like so many of my interests, it wasn't something that just suddenly came on me. It usually took a few sparks to ignite the flame. And in my case, uh, around, let's see, it was in summer of 1980, I was on a YMCA caravan through the Southwest, and we went through really a lot of wonderful areas that probably had a lot of rock art that we did not see in Arizona and Utah. But finally in Nevada, at the Valley of Fire, we visited Adelaide Rock, which is a spectacular petroglyph site. It's a little disappointing in that some of the man-made features of the state park detract a little bit from the original magic of the site, but still a wonderful, wonderful panel. And it caught my eye. And then a couple of years later, maybe about four years later, I saw another small site in Arizona when I was going to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And I came across a, a prehistoric ruin on top of a hill. And it was some basalt cliffs right there below the ruin had petroglyphs. And that was interesting. But it still wasn't quite enough to grab me. It wasn't until December of 1985 when I was doing something completely uninvolved with archaeology. I was visiting the Rocketdyne facility 
in Canoga Park, California, where they test rocket engines for the Apollo spacecraft on the space shuttle. And my tour guide just sort of offhandedly mentioned that they had some Chumash pictographs on site. And I asked if we could see those, and she said, nope, it's all protected. You have to go in at certain times of the year with special permission. Fortunately for me, Dr. Ed Krupp, the director of the Griffiths Observatory, was planning a trip in there for the winter solstice, and I was able to get attached to that and saw my first pictographs. And that was a polychrome site, and it had the archaeoastronomy aspect to it, which dovetailed with my interest in space sciences and astronomy. And so kind of combined a lot of my interests all together in one, and the rock art just blew me away. So, So Peter, when you were there at, they call it Burrow Flats, I believe. You experienced the winter solstice, and did you see that sun dagger they say so much about? Yes, uh, it was the winter solstice at Burrow Flats. We had the sun dagger effect, which the sun comes through this notch in the rock and just sort of projects it onto a set of five circles, which, you know, depending on uh, on the region within the Gabrielino and Chumash areas, it's either three worlds or five worlds making up the universe. And in this case, it's the five worlds. So the middle world is ours, and that's where the sun dagger touches. And that was pretty spectacular. I'd, I'd heard of sun dagger effects previously. I'd read about the famous site in Chaco Canyon at Fajada Butte. And now, of course, after so many years, I've learned that there's quite a few sites like that. And in fact, I even found one in Southern California in the Western Mojave Desert, which I wrote a paper on. What site was that exactly, the one that you wrote a paper on, the Western Mojave? That was up in Burham Canyon. Ah. In some of the references, it's erroneously referred to as Tyler Horse Canyon. That's not correct. Tyler Horse is about two canyons over. And I had visited the Burham Canyon site to see the pictographs there because there's a nice polychrome panel on a large boulder which overlooks the the canyon itself part of a pile of boulders which there's some bedrock mortars and some cupules and then down below in the the valley floor there's another smaller pictograph site which has sort of a calendar theme to it or seems to there's a sun type symbol a ray disc with a lot of little tick marks But the main panel was uh, primarily what I was hoping to see. And on a later visit to that site, I was crawling around the rocks trying to find any other pictographs that might have been missed or, you know, weren't well known. And there was a, a narrow crevice I crawled through and I found myself inside a cave which had, uh, it's, it wasn't a bedrock mortar, but it was clearly man-made pit in the, the bedrock floor and it was strange it was it was angled it was a little bit uh, squared at the corners almost definitely not natural and there was not a bit of rock art inside that shelter anywhere but it seemed interesting particularly because there was a window through the rocks that faced the east or the eastern rim of the canyon where the sun would rise So I just kept checking it from time to time, winter solstice, summer solstice, and around the time of the summer solstice, there was quite a spectacular sun dagger effect, and the the, the sun projected in there against the back wall of the shelter, and eventually that light formed into a single narrow dagger that moved down across the floor and penetrated that pit in the bedrock. 
So that became another thing that I've spent a lot of time studying over a number of years and eventually put into a paper that I presented at the San Diego Rock Art Symposium a few years ago. You know, what's interesting about that is I'm very familiar with Burham Canyon and that site. In fact, I, I feature it in the handbook of the Kauaisu. I spent four years with that native group that uh, is indigenous and historically lived there, Al Knight and Jack Sprague also helped to describe that site and talk about it. But I was unaware of the archaeoastronomical elements of it. And this is a, a whole new perspective and piece. The other thing I learned about it from Gail Sprague, Jack's wife, is that that site has another sort of perspective to it in that the landform itself, if you look at it from a certain orientation, has the profile of a bear. Have you seen that? I had not noticed that aspect of it. That's that's for sure. The canyon struck me as a very interesting place. There was a spring there, a natural spring that seemed to have water pretty much year-round and would have been a good source of, of game. There were evidence of flaking and manufacturing of, of, of lithic tools or arrow points. On the eastern rim of the canyon, where the sun came up from the perspective of that, that stone window, there was a cairn, a rock cairn, which lined up, looked pretty much perfectly with that, that summer solstice sunrise. Remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. So what, what occurred next in your early journey of rock art discovery? Well, once I'd seen Burrow Flats, I was very anxious to see more of the rock art of Southern California, and particularly the Chumash area. And I was beginning to meet people who were uh, interested in that field and other folks who had visited sites, and we were able to share information. And I used to go out on weekends and, and explore sites in the Santa Barbara backcountry and the Mojave Desert and the East Mojave and elsewhere. But really, one of the best things was at that time, I discovered the Rock Art Archive at UCLA, which was a spectacular resource. And at the time, the archivist was Helen Michaelis. And she was very friendly and very anxious to help me out and to inspire my, my interest in rock art. Yes, I'm aware of that archive. It's been a resource for me as well. And there's some remarkable researchers that are associated with that facility, including, of course, some of the pioneers in California archaeology, Clem Meehan, and of course, uh, Joanne Van Tilburg is part of that facility, what they call the Kotzen Research Institute. So that archive does hold the research that she did out at Little Lake. Uh, yes, the archive has an amazing amount of material in it, and I'm sure quite a bit more than they ever had when I was going there back in the 1980s and early 1990s. I have to admit, I really liked the way it was back then. A guy like me could just walk in and say, hi, I'm interested in this subject, and could expect he had a lot of help. Whereas today, I think you have to jump through an awful lot of academic hoops to get access to that material. Yeah, I would agree with that. The particular security requirements and the credentials one needs now to visit rock art sites, of course, is continuing to uh, go up and get more thorough. But with, with that in mind, 
it obviously did not stop your passion and you must have continued in that journey, did you not? I most certainly did. And I've spent a great many years now exploring the uh, southwestern United States, also down into Baja, California. I was fortunate to take a trip down there for a couple weeks to the Great Murals, then eventually the Tassili Niger in Algeria, which was pretty much the highlight, I think, of my rock art career. But it certainly wasn't the end of it. I've continued on. I, In fact, just coming across the country to the Midwest, I made it a point to visit as many rock art sites as I could along the way, traveling through Nevada and Utah. Wonderful. Well, I think that's a nice segue to our next segment. And perhaps during that uh, second part of our interview, you could perhaps lead us on your rock art journey throughout the American Southwest into Baja, and then ultimately off to the Tisalai. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. Welcome back. This is the second segment of episode 11 for your rock art podcast. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation that uh, hosts this rock art podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're certainly welcome and interested in participating and sending us your feedback at carockart.org. You can also phone me at 805-312-2261 or shoot me an email at avram1952 at yahoo.com. We have with us Peter Merlin, and we will be talking about his adventures as a rock art explorer, documentarian, and researcher. Peter, welcome back to the second segment. I do. Thanks. So, well, glad you, glad you were able to take the time out of your busy schedule to do that. When we last spoke in the first segment, you had brought us up to some of the places you visited, at least in Southern California, amongst the Chumash and amongst the Western Mojave Desert interface. Perhaps you could lead us on a bit of a tour, a journey, a word picture of some of the places you may have been in the American Southwest and in the Baja Peninsula. Certainly. I have to say I'm always going to have a very special place in my heart for all of the Chumash sites. I've spent a lot of time in Ventura County, Santa Barbara County, Kern County, the 
the Santa Barbara backcountry, particularly the, the colorful and intricate designs are amazing and have a very psychedelic feel to them. And some of the sites are just, you know, they have a spiritual feel all their own. I've enjoyed the Southwest a lot. Nevada has been a place I've spent a great deal of time. But I've got to say, I was very glad to get to Chaco Canyon in New Mexico. The Anasazi ruins there and the associated rock art uh, are just world class. Uh, it's, it's, it's like a step back in time. And some of those sites were ones I'd read about when I was very young. In fact, one of them is a pictograph that scientists believe indicates the supernova of 1054 AD, Crab Nebula supernova. And I read about that in uh, an article in the Griffith Observer, the magazine of Griffith Observatory. In fact, it was probably a contribution from Ed Krupp. But it wasn't uh, for quite a few years, but I think from I read about that in the 1970s, and I didn't get there until much later, but it was wonderful to see. I was fortunate to meet some people who had traveled into Baja, California, to the Great Murals, and in November 1989, I joined several of them going down to the Sierra de San Francisco to see Cueva Pintada and all of the sites down those canyons in the immediate vicinity. And it must have been about a dozen or so great mural sites. It's hard to even describe. <laughs> They're just so enormous. It's a lot to take in. We drove about 600 miles south of the California border and then up into the mountains. When you're approaching... The, uh, the crest of the Sierra, I mean, it looks like you're just in the middle of this desert. It's so so dry and dead. But down in the canyons, it's lush and green, and there's rivers and palm trees. We had several guides, and they supplied burrows uh, so that we could ride down into the canyon and carry all our gear and spend about a week down there exploring the sites. Just magnificent. What would you say is the real motivation for you? in terms of rock art, what is it that, that tugs on your spirit? And what is it that, that gives you this uh, passion or, you know, persuasion to view more? Why do, why do people have such a great interest in viewing rock art? Well, that is an interesting question. It's a way of, of reaching back into the past and connecting with uh, the people who came before it's one of the reasons I particularly like some of the sites that have handprints where uh, the artist just dipped their hand in pigment and touched it to the wall of the cave. And you, know, you see that and I mean, that's that's a person did that. And you just it's it's a, a visceral connection to that artist. And then, of course, just the, the various paintings and carvings and, and etchings, you know, the artistic skill involved the spiritual connection, the, the possibility of connecting to the cosmos, the way they use some of those sites as archaeoastronomy sites to, to measure the course of the year and the position of the sun. There are just so many things, but it's, it, they're magical places. You being a resource and a specialist in the arena of aeronautics as well would seem to have an overlap in terms of the cosmic elements. Is that correct? Is there sort of a, a synthesis there in terms of your interests? 
Well, I, I find that my interests cut across one another and overlap very frequently, and sometimes in strange ways. My interest in, in aerospace and space exploration took me to Rocketdyne, where I was introduced to, of all things, Chumash pictographs, which I never would have expected. And at another site in Nevada, you know, I was, was looking for petroglyphs, and I came across a place where there was nuclear testing, nuclear weapons testing. And that, oddly enough, is another historical area of interest to me. So just very st- strange and, and surrealistic connections. So there's a lot of serendipity to this, too. There's a lot of coincidence and sort of almost like a, a spiritual tug where you're being led to various discoveries throughout your life. And these coincidences sort of have, have spurred your interest and research. Am I correct? Uh, there's definitely serendipity. And I have to say, particularly in 2019, in January, my wife and I were visiting her sister in southwestern Oregon. Before we went, I did a little research in the hopes that there might be some rock art in that area that I could check out. And there was virtually none. Uh, there were a few known sites. They were quite a bit further north of where we were staying, but just not much. And we decided to take a drive to look for some redwood trees. We ended up on the wrong road and essentially gave up. And at one point, I just picked a spot seemingly at random where I said, hey, could we stop? I want to take a picture of the river. And I stepped out of the car and found petroglyphs, <laughs> undiscovered, unrewarded petroglyphs. So serendipity indeed. That's, that's amazing. That's very, very amazing. When you're trying to discover sites or relocate the sites, for instance, working with the, the archive, the archive at UCLA, how do you go about that? Someone uh, mentioned this to me and indicated that perhaps it has to do with a sense of the geography or the environment or other elements. How does one go about sort of finding or assessing the most likely places for rock art? Well, uh, that is an interesting question. I've I've often thought of trying to discover unrecorded or undiscovered sites. You know, I don't know if it would be particularly easy. You have to really cover a lot of ground and often a lot of rugged terrain because most of the low-hanging fruit, as it were, has already been picked. The, the sites that are obvious, for the most part, have been discovered, although the one I found by that river in Oregon uh, should have been discovered ages ago. In fact, I'm sure other people have seen it, but somehow they probably just assumed, oh, well, this is so obvious, it must have already been recorded. But to go out and look for sites and explore the wilderness takes a, a lot more time and energy trying to pick areas where there are promising rock outcrops or caves, uh, where there might be resources that the natives would have taken advantage of, springs or places where there would have been game or other 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 kind of things to eat or, or use. Um, I've never really tried to do that, but I, I've known people who have, and you know, every now and then they'll announce that, hey, we discovered some new site that nobody knew about. Uh, maybe it got uncovered by a wildfire, or maybe they just... You know, looked at a rock that nobody had looked at or tried de-stretch on panels that were thought to be blank, but in fact had pictographs. Tell us a bit about what de-stretch is. I'm sure you have used it on occasion, and perhaps you can even talk about some of the other sites that you've either 
made presentations about or done research on that sort of, you know, touched your psyche and you felt that those were, there was something there that needed to be told? Well, the, the D-Stretch program uh, was developed by John Harmon, and it's an excellent tool for bringing out pigments that are faded away. I have not yet actually used it, although John did send me the software, and I keep meaning to do that, and I believe it would come in very handy on some of the pictures I've taken. But it's been useful to the extent that not only can you draw out the details of a known pictograph, but you can also take a picture of what looks like a blank rock surface and then fiddle around with the, the colors until you bring out designs that were uh, completely completely invisible to the naked eye. It is an amazing tool. That's uh, wonderful. Yeah, John Harmon is certainly one of the pioneers and a, a real tremendous resource for us for working on that and providing it to all of us. I understand there's now a uh, app that you can download. It's very modestly priced that you can put on your smartphone. And I've used that in the past and it's rather remarkable. Do you have certain sites that engage you in a way that you did follow-up research or presentations or publications? Or are there sites that are publicly available that we should tell the listeners about that are protected and they might enjoy? Well, in terms of some of the sites I've written about and published on, I did did publish a paper on the Burham Canyon site, primarily the research I'd done into archaeoastronomy. I felt that I had sat on that bit of information for a great many years and taken my research as far as I could, and I wanted to put the information out there so that other people could maybe take it a little further, look at it from different angles, maybe things I had not thought of. Uh, in fact, even the process of writing that paper got me to thinking about things that I hadn't previously considered. Because, for instance, the Sun Dagger, uh, it, it did, in fact, interact with that man-made pit in the bedrock floor of the shelter, but not quite in the way that I expected and not quite with the timing that I would have hoped for. However, it suggested a new theory that possibly that pit was not meant to be the artifact that would be touched by the sun, but in fact, just a holding place for perhaps another object that no longer is there, something that would have only been placed there certain times of the year. But that's just a, just a theory. And then I went to another rock art site, this time in Nevada, with the idea of looking at it as a potential archaeoastronomy site, and uh, while I still think that's, that's possible, there was certainly compelling evidence. This was up at Parak Summit. I'm not at all sure that that was the, the most important thing that I discovered. I, I found, in fact, that maybe the artwork itself represented a particularly unique site within that area. So uh, I wrote a paper and presented that in San Diego as well. And, of course, I also did a paper on the site in Oregon I discovered and on the Tassili because uh, I just love the artwork of the Tassili Niger and what it represents and what it signifies. So you alluded to the fact that some of the images, rather than the alignments or archaeoastronomical elements, were some of the most important or central messages that you received on certain sites, especially on that site, I believe, in the Great Basin in Nevada. 
from from sort of the interpretive side, what would you say some of the messages or the communication, the purpose, the nature are of some of the rock arts that you visited? What would you say intuitively and also from a scholarly standpoint would be the purpose or function of rock art? Well, I think I think what I'd really like to to mention some of the sites that I've been to, you can definitely sense that it was considered to be a sacred place. I mean, a couple of the places I stopped at on the way here when I was going through the San Rafael Swell in Utah can only be described with the word cathedral. One particularly was Wild Horse Window. And when you see that site from a distance, and it's visible for you know more than a mile away, you see a cave in this sandstone reef, and you have to hike across the stone to, to get to it for you know, nearly a mile before dropping into a narrow, twisting little canyon, which has natural pools of water. And you come out into a bowl, which is underneath a vast sandstone arch. And it's like columns of stone coming down, and there's a a skylight in the ceiling, and the place just echoes like crazy. And there are paintings on the wall, just in this one particular spot, but it's a long panel of of pictographs in uh, primarily polychrome. And it's just magnificent. It is absolutely a prehistoric cathedral. That's phenomenal. You know, I share that passion and enthusiasm for the sacred, the spiritual, and the religious nature of rock art. And I do get that same overwhelming sense that it was the place itself and the subject matter, but the place in terms of its, the landform, the sounds, the environment, all working together. And I think that's about all of we can, we can talk about in the second segment. So in, I think in the third segment, we'll segue and talk about Tassili or Tassili and get into some of the details of how you may have executed that interesting and challenging journey. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hello out there in podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, president of the California Rock Art Foundation. We're here with Peter Merlin for the third segment of the Rock Art Podcast. So Peter, we've been on this journey for about maybe half to three quarters of an hour now. And I think what we should do next is lead us on a visual and auditory way of thinking about your trip to Tassili. Well, you know, obviously when I started getting involved with rock art, I picked up as many books as I possibly could on the subject. Some of the very first ones I got included Ancient Images on Stone, which is basically just a coffee table book, but had some wonderful pictures that inspired me to visit some sites. And Earth and Sky, which is a collection of papers from the Conference on Archaeoastronomy at Northridge. But eventually I came across a book by Henri Lote on the 
ancient frescoes of Tassili, which are, of course, the uh, uh, painted caves of the Tassili Niger Plateau in central uh, Sahara Desert in southeastern Algeria. And I read that book, uh, described Lot's journey in the 1950s with a crew of guys who photographed and uh, recorded the rock art, creating paintings of the different panels. And there are some spectacular panels there. And I mean, really, that, that whole area, there are petroglyphs and pictographs. They cover many thousands of years and literally illustrate the changing environmental conditions of what we now call the Sahara Desert. It wasn't always a desert. It used to be a very green place, and the, the pictographs reflect that there were once uh, rivers uh, that were deep enough for boats to sail on, and uh, animals such as giraffes and hippos and elephants. And gradually that changed, and it was partly due to the population growing, resources being used for agriculture, farming, cattle herding. These are also elements that are recorded in the paintings. Eventually, uh, groups with higher technology, including horse-drawn chariots and more advanced weapons, showed up on the scene and probably caused some problems for the native inhabitants. And then eventually, of course, with the changing climate, the Sahara dried up and became the desert we know of today. And all of that is reflected in the pictographs. So Tassili was very difficult to get to, very challenging. I understand it was politically very sensitive and also because of its location and the accessibility issues, extremely challenging to go in and and actually see and experience the rock art, correct? That is true. And I went in November of 1990 And there were a group of us, uh, Paul Freeman from San Francisco, made arrangements through a a French touring company called Deserts. And they arranged for Tuareg native guides who would uh, meet us with camels to haul all our our gear. But of course, I had to make sure that I had the proper visas with my passport. And we all sent in our, our passports individually. And mine never came back which uh, was not good. And so there were a bunch of phone calls back and forth. By that time, Paul was already in Paris where we were staging. And I had been arguing with the Algerian consulates. The guys in D.C. said that they couldn't help me out unless the consulate in Paris requested it and vice versa. And we weren't getting anywhere. I ended up flying to Paris not knowing if I was going to be able to continue my journey and Paul and I went to the, the embassy, and we gave our sob story and paid a little bit of money, and we were good to go. So then it was a matter of flying to Algiers, and from there we were to take another plane uh, all the way down to Jeannette, which is in uh, the southeastern corner of the, the country. Well, we got on our, our plane, and Uh, About halfway, not even halfway, maybe a third of the way down, there was a stop at a place called Gardaia. And when we got there, the plane captain told everybody to disembark. And we were there for seven hours before they let us come back on again, at which point we noticed there was a big pile of electrical systems diagrams sitting next to the cockpit, which wasn't a good sign. 
And it turns out there'd been a significant problem and we had to fly back to Algiers. So our journey was delayed, but we did eventually make it down. And we met our guides at the base of the Tassili-Niger Plateau. From there, uh, we spent about the next eight days uh, on foot. Uh, the camels carried most of the gear and water. And we climbed up onto the top of the plateau through a series of rocky passes. It's a very desolate country, very desolate and dry. And uh, we'd been told not to expect to be able to have a campfire because there's no wood to burn. But surprisingly, our guides every evening managed to find enough wood to burn. So we, we had a campfire, and that was a great comfort. Uh, walking approximately 70 miles sounds like a lot, but it was, was really not bad at all. The temperature was quite nice in November. We had brought enough water to make it halfway, and then there was a muddy water hole to supply the rest of the, the journey. But the, the thing that impressed me... Uh, the most and will always stick with me is that every every place we stopped to take a rest break or to camp every single place the ground was littered with something that was made by human beings tools lithic flakes from manufacturing of, of tools and arrow points beads made from ostrich eggshell or stone and other things it was you could just see that this had been an inhabited place. Now it's completely uninhabited and desolate. I can imagine that that was quite a adventure and quite a impressive odyssey to be in a place like the Sahara Desert that is so dramatic and so unoccupied and so dry and resource deficient at this point to think that that place would be the home of some of the most spectacular rock art on earth is certainly paradoxical. And the rock art is spectacular. It's, it's a world-class gallery of ancient paintings and carvings. We would come across an area that had a multitude of caves and stone columns and arches. And within the rock shelters, uh, there were paintings sometimes overlapping covering many centuries. A lot of it was uh, monochrome, but quite a bit was polychrome, red and white and black and yellow. And some of the artistic technique used, particularly in the middle periods, uh, the, the periods when agriculture was a chief source of uh, uh, the economy for the, the locals, the artistic quality was just it was not primitive. I mean, there were some really delicately and intricately drawn figures of humans and animals. It's just amazing to see. Now, I remember looking at some of the uh, images that certainly in this early period, I don't know if it's five, six, seven thousand 7,000 years ago, when there was these enormous animals, rhinoceroses, hippos, giraffes, alligators, that they have rock drawings there that are absolutely immense. It's probably some of the biggest images of animals ever rendered. The artwork, in some cases, is, is life-size almost. There was a figure of an antelope that basically looked like it was you know 100% scale. There were, interestingly, some humanoid figures from some of the earlier, earlier periods that were oversized, where the 
a figure that was meant to represent a male or female type anthropomorph would be 10 or 12 feet tall. Amazing. Amazing. Of all the silly images that you saw, I guess, which ones were the most memorable or what was the experience that you saw that I think stuck in your mind, perhaps even in terms of the spiritual or religious aspects of these sites? Well, the older pictographs from what they call the period of the hunters tended to have a more cartoonish aspect in some ways. And the humanoid figures are, uh, they've, they've got these round heads that look almost like helmets. So uh, in fact, it was, it's been called the period of the round heads. Those were strange and surrealistic to look at. And some of those were, uh, those figures were very large. One's called the, has been called the great god of Safar. Uh, the site of Safar was one of the particular galleries I love the most. It's just a magnificent figure that towers over the viewer and has smaller figures around it that look like supplicants of some kind. And then uh, I was very moved by some of the middle period artwork, the period of the herders, because of its delicacy. And uh, in some cases, what seemed almost like humor built into the particular drawings. There's a, a drawing of a hunter. He's, he's got a, a throwing stick, looks you know, like a boomerang, and he's bending over, and there's an animal that looks like it's sneaking up behind him, about to, to butt him from behind. And that was hilarious. And just the, the, the quality of the images was, was spectacular, and the setting that they were in, it, it was amazing. Then you get into the later period artwork, and it becomes more crude, the period of the horsemen, where you've got the chariots illustrated, and then later the camels. When, once you get to the camels, now you're talking about uh, Sahara that was very dry, uh, resource poor, and it's almost amazing that people living there could take the time to, to do the artwork, but they did, illustrating their lives, their, their warfare and their animals, and also the beginnings of early writing. And toward the end of that, the most recent stuff, it uh, almost had degenerated to graffiti, quite a change. Was there uh, writing or some other means of, of dating by way of the subject matter of the images, or is it the superposition? What's the way in which you can, I guess, chronologically position the rock art? Yes, in particular, uh, I would say what is being illustrated is the easiest way to date the art, because if you're seeing boats or animals that require a great deal of water and forage, then you can figure that was from the time when the Sahara was, was green. And then the later imagery you know, shows uh, the changes in technology, both agricultural and in terms of warfare and transportation. And then finally, when you get to the camels, now you're, you're looking at a, a Sahara that was dry and no longer had those, those running rivers and the, the big lakes like would have been illustrated earlier. So, yes, the, the type of, of imagery uh, is the best clue. There is some overpainting, but for the most part, a lot of the sites just have artwork separate or side by side. And, of course, uh, there's been a fair amount of archaeological work done uh, looking at the artifacts that have been left behind. So uh, combining all those gives us a pretty good picture of the changing environment of the Sahara from its 
green period to now uh, the largest desert in the world. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Sounds like it was uh, one of one of the pinnacles of your adventures, your rock art adventures. How many people were in the group and how long were you there? The whole trip lasted about two weeks. We had uh, roughly a dozen people and several guides to work the camel caravan. We, we spent eight days on the trail, hiking a total of about 70 miles, eventually dropping off the plateau back down to the bottom where we were met by guides with jeeps who took us to another site out in the vast sand dune sea. And that was a neat place too because that had a life-size cattle carved into the rock at a spot where it looked like if you did have any rain, and there's certainly not much out there, it might form a temporary pool of water. And the, the, the cattle, the three longhorn cattle, they each had a tear coming from one eye carved into the rock. So it's the site of the crying cows. And uh, after walking about 70 miles, that was the place I decided I was going to take off my boots and just wiggle my toes in the sand and not put my boots on again until we had to go to the airport. How did that work out for you? Well, uh, on the plus side, it felt really good. But on the minus side, there were some very thorny burrs under the sand that I kept stepping on. But I was undaunted and I wandered around. And sure enough, even there, even on those sand dunes, like every other place we camped, there was evidence of human habitation. Fragments of ostrich eggshell, beads, lithics. Uh, again, a place where you, you're sitting there looking at a vast open desert with almost no vegetation to speak of, certainly no open water sources, and yet this is a place where people once lived. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I could, I could talk with you for much longer, but I think we've used up our time. And Pete, you, you did a phenomenal job in terms of taking us on a, a rock art odyssey from your earliest years to uh, the research throughout the country, across the pond uh, here in the States, and then over into Tassili. Tassili, Niger, quite the place. Well, I have to thank you so much for uh, sharing and reflecting on your life in this way, and I'm sure that the audience and those people who had a chance to uh, patch it and listen are honored to hear from you. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. 
Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info.